The rest of you can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Uh, it's near the back of your Bibles, and uh, you can check a Bible out in front of you if you don't have one. Uh, one other announcement going on um, is uh, we want to support families and parents. We're in the middle of a series on that. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways that we do that is we offer a fourth Sundays of the month. We offer kind of a, a parent time where parents of youth can get together and commiserate and pray and uh, learn from one another and all that. That's happening right now uh, over in room six uh, with, with Ben. Um, here's what I would say. If you did not plan on coming to both services, which I would recommend you doing on these four Sundays if you're a parent of a youth, um, particularly due to the subject matter, it would probably be better to stay in here because it's all about parenting uh, this morning. However, if you're able to stick around next hour, we're doing this whole thing again in, in one hour, um, feel free to slip out and join Ben. But um, Make, make those a habit. Those are just good to get together with other parents and kind of continue the dialogue and conversation that we've been having on, um, on families and parents. Uh, so this morning is about parenting primarily. Uh, and, and if you're a child, if you're a teen, if you are unmarried, if you are a grandparent, you might wonder what this has to do with you. Uh, it has everything to do with you. And here, let me give you a few um, tips. One is, uh, if you're not married yet and you hope to be a parent one day, um, listen in, because there is truth from God's word that you can begin to soak into your life. God put a longing in my heart to be a great husband and a great dad when I was in high school. I actually had to turn over anxieties to God about it because it was a longing in my heart. I recognize now that was God putting that on my heart, but a part of what stirred that up was just being exposed to, to God's word um, most every Sunday and, uh, and just hearing from that. So that's for those of you in that camp. Um, some of you don't have children, but God has allowed you to pour into the next generation in a variety of ways. Uh, much of what I'm going to talk about won't directly relate to you on a day-to-day basis, but you are a part of a church family, and you are part of, um, of a biological family, and so there are all kinds of things to be able to, to glean and, and use from, from today. Uh, let me just have you do this. Write down a grade for the American family on your paper right now. Take out your notes and um, just write, how is the American family? Uh, school, A through F. So just like a regular school grade uh, in your estimation. I know that you don't have all the data available, but just kind of from your pulse of it. There's a quote from a book called Becoming Partners. It says this, The institution of marriage is most assuredly in an uncertain state. If 50 to 75% of Ford or General Motors cars completely fell apart in the early part of their lifetime as automobiles, drastic steps would be taken. Agreed? 50 to 75% of the cars coming off the line. We have no such well-organized way of dealing with our social institutions, so people are groping more or less blindly to find alternatives to marriage. Living together without marriage, extensive child care centers, new divorce laws which do away with the concept of guilt, these are all gropings towards some new form of man-woman relationship for the future. It would take a bolder man than I to predict what will emerge. The author of that was a guy named Carl Rogers. He was a secular socialist um, study, not a socialist in the uh, political sense, studying... Uh, social issues. It was written in 1973. Now here's the question. What would Carl say to the state of the American family today versus 1973? I took out one part of that quote so it wouldn't give away that it was written so long ago. He said living in communes, which evidently in the 70s was kind of a big deal. Uh, What would Carl say to uh, things today? I think more confused and groping blindly than ever is how I would describe um, things. 
The family is vital, and therefore it's the focus of the attack from the enemy. Make sense? The family is vital, therefore it is imperative that we guard and look after and cultivate the family in a way that God desires. The Bible knows this, and the Bible warns us about these things. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Follow along, it says this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 13 goes, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Catch this, that an overwhelming sense of self-centeredness and self-indulgence will be the characteristics that will mark the last days. Taking this list and kind of overlaying it on the home, what effect does this have on the home? It's huge. Specifically, I I pull out a couple here. Um, Abusive, disobedient to their parents, heartless. The home is in an uncertain state. I start off with bad news about the home and about the family. And what I'm really wanting to do is just say, let's, let's not gloss over things here in church. Let's just look at things as they are and see where they're at. Is there hope? Of course there's hope. There's hope for every family. In fact, the Christian story is one of good news, right? And you don't really appreciate good news until what? Until you understand the bad news. Until you understand, what is it, Rob? You're the popsicle on the ground with the dog licking you? Yeah. Until you understand your dirtiness, being made clean doesn't make any sense. It doesn't really cause celebration in us. God has paved the way for us to become his children. God has bridged the gap of sin. This is what we cling to. This is what we sing about. We just sing God's the remedy for our illness. Here's what this series has been about. It's the idea of trusting God not only for your eternal salvation, but trust God for your family. Trust God's plan of salvation. Trust God's plan for the family. Let me pray. God, this morning, I pray that as I speak the words that I've prepared and As people receive it on the other end, God, that our minds would be washed with the word, that we would give ourselves to your picture of the family. God, that we wouldn't be held captive to what works, to what we know how to do, to what we were handed down, but God, that we would put all of that under the lens of Scripture and say, God, whatever your plan is for the family, that's what I want to do. God, every one of us in this room has corrections to make, and has areas to be utterly celebrated and, and, and encouraged in. Uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We know that you're present, but we invite you to have your way in our hearts and our minds as we look into this. In Jesus' name, amen. I asked how the American family is doing. How about your family? How is your family doing? If you're a parent right now, um, I want you to do something. I want you to draw on your paper. I want you to draw how you're doing, okay? Now, to level the playing field, I've given you a few examples, okay? We're not talking just to the artists. You can draw in stick figures, all right? Everyone gets to play. 
Uh, if you're a kid right now in a family and you're living at home, draw how you're doing. Draw how it feels to be a kid in your family right now. Okay, This is actual participation. I'm not going to have you turn in your stick figure so you don't need to be self-conscious about how it looks. I want you to get a snapshot moment. What's today's date? August something. 21st maybe? 23rd. Off by a couple days. On August 23rd, 2015, here's how I, here's what I was going through as, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a kid in a family. We saw last week that parenting is discipleship. And that you'll find no more willing disciples on this planet than your own children, particularly while they're living in your home. And the call to arms is this. Don't squander that opportunity. Don't squander these years that we have. George Whitfield said that every family was a parish and that every father was a priest. That what's going on in our homes, I, I challenged you last week, if you don't like something your pastor's doing, do it better in your home. If you really are ministered to some by, by some things that the family shepherd of God's household, the church, are doing, man, mimic those and do those in the home. This one series will lighten my workload and the workload of our elder team tremendously. Here's what I mean by that. If you are discipling your children... That's God's plan, by the way, that you would disciple your children. He's entrusted them to you. At least two things are going to happen. One is that the church is not forced to step into the void. One of the things that I saw as a youth pastor was there were many kids who were, who were being taught really well at home the, the things of God. They were having it modeled. And, and so we, we acted our part. We kind of were offsetting some of the things going on at home. But we saw other kids coming, praise God, from homes that never heard the word of Jesus except as a swear word when dad hit his you know, thumb with a hammer or something. And in those situations, we stepped into the void that was there and we became more than the church was intended to be. We became like fathers and mothers to these kids. We began to pour into them and, and fill up that void. Praise God, many kids became Christians, uh, their parents became Christians, and we got to slowly release the reins and step back. That's a great, great picture. As you take on the discipleship mantle for your kids... The church won't be doing as much, and that's a good thing. What if there's encouragement and discipline going on in your home? What if there's an understanding and a talking about the gospel and that God's big story is being talked to and referred to? What if the Great Commission is valued in your home and modeled in your home? What if spiritual disciplines are not only taught but, but joined in with the parents as you, as you work those out together? What if God's heart for the world is being nurtured in your home on a daily or weekly basis? And those are great things. So if you're diligently discipling your kids at home, the church won't be forced to step into the void. And here's a second thing. A second thing is that you, parents, will grow immensely. You will grow immensely. Isn't it one thing to say that you believe something, but a whole other thing to try to explain it to someone else? Yeah. It's one thing to say, I believe the tenets of the Christian faith. It's even another thing to say, well, I could jot those on a test and get most of them right. But it's a whole other ball of wax to actually teach it to someone else. Once you are teaching something to someone else, you really have to know what you're talking about and be living it. Parents, you grow as you disciple your kids. Amen? Here's another thing that happens. As you disciple your kids, um, Rob talked about this a few moments ago, you discover your lacking. You discover how... Um, how many ways you aren't able to give to your kids what your kids need. And so that causes parents to do a couple different things. My prayer would be that it would cause us parents, and I include myself in this, I have young children at home, it would cause us to fall on our knees 
in humility before God and confess, God, I don't have what it takes. I don't have all that these kids need from me. It has us on our knees praying for God to be God and shepherd these kids. It has us on our knees hungry to be learning about things that we don't know. It causes us to go to the scriptures and look for answers. It causes us to come to church and be hungry for answers, diligently writing down anything we can do because we take our job so seriously because we celebrate and recognize this unique parent-child relationship that God has set up. This is a great thing. Hungry learners are effective learners. The most hungry people, the most effective learning that goes on is when we recognize our need for it, right? All right, with all that is flowing in directions away from God and away from good, and if you kind of look at cultural streams, you you tend to see the currents going the other way, uh, away from God and away from good, you may be asking this question. And how can I ensure that my kids will turn out right and that I can protect them uh, from, from getting swept away from all these currents flowing away from God, flowing away from good. I have some bad news and some good news. Here's the bad news, kind of the, the hard truth. You can't. You cannot ensure that your kids won't get swept downstream. Uh, for confirmation of that, here's what I'd want you to do. We have some godly, godly parents in this room that haven't had children in their home for a decade or more, go and talk to them. They will tell you stories of the fact that those are results, and results are left to God. We can't enforce those. We're not in control of those. If you're in that situation, parents, take a deep breath. The enemy has a way of coming alongside and accusing prodigal parents, parents of prodigals. And saying, wow, you should have done more. You could have done more. Is that true? Possibly. But you know what? Those are results that are out of our hands. Here's what you can do. You can be strategic right now. I don't care where you are in the spectrum. You can be strategic right now with your time, with your energy, and with your uh, focus to... Um, to their well-being. Let's go back to, to your parenting drawing for a moment. Look at your picture for a moment. What did you draw? Think about what's causing you to draw that picture right now. Like What's going on right now that, that has you leaning that way in your picture? Let me give you one more picture that every parent will get to um, at some point in time. And if you're there right now, then you know what I'm talking about. It's this. It's feeling the weight of parenting of what it means to be a mom, of what it means to be a dad. It's feeling that weight and wondering if you have what it takes to go on. In this drawing, are those tears or are those sweat marks? Uh, They're both, right? Depending on the day, there's days you're just sweating it out. It's just hard. There's days where you're just bawling your eyes out and you you don't even know where to turn. This is a good picture of parenting right here. God, I'm not sure if I can hold this thing up much longer. When something is too heavy to lift or to move, here's what we know to do. We look for leverage. We look for help. We say, I have to move that. I have to lift that. But I am quite certain I can't do this on my own. 
Do you see that that's a good place to be? It's a great place to be in a place where you realize, wow, I'm not in control of this anymore. And we're duped into thinking we're in control when we can control a lot of our kids' world when they're young. As they get older, we realize, well, we're not in as much control as we thought or wished that we were. Let me give you two key areas to pour your energy into, and these apply to any stage of parenting and any age of child. Here it is. Uh, Number one is to go after the heart. Go after the heart. If you're jotting notes down, write that down. Here's what your temptation will be, especially when children are young. Your temptation will be to deal with the external in favor of the internal. Isn't that true? It'll be that you want to go after behavior instead of the belief behind the behavior, right? Instead of getting to the heart, which is really hard work, it's easier to deal with the external. Here's a really, really simple reason for that. Dealing with behavior is the Twinkie. What's a Twinkie? A Twinkie is immediate gratification. Is it good for you? Of course not. It's a Twinkie, right? But it's so easy. How hard is it to prepare a Twinkie? Super easy. Are they individually wrapped? I think so. You open the wrapping and you shove that thing in your mouth, right? Hopefully in private so no one watches you do this disgusting act. But as that thing's going down, you're going, man, this is just good. This is easy. Dealing with the externals is the Twinkie, okay? Uh, Dealing with the externals is is, is immediately gratifying. In other words, the problem seems to go away right right away because you can control externals sometimes. The payoff is more easily measurable. They either stop the behavior or they didn't stop the behavior, and you can see when it's done. It's more convenient to deal with behavior than to stop what you're doing and really get to the heart of the matter. Amen? Of course it is. Uh, It's also easier to correct. All these things are true for a season. Do Twinkies catch up with you? Say yes. Of course they do, right? Does parenting the externals catch up with you? Absolutely. For a season, you can deal with just with the externals and think you're doing A-OK. It's a deadly trap to deal with it. It's not only not effective, but it's not biblical. If you deal strictly with behavior modification, which is dealing with the externals instead of the internal, you'll end up with one of two types of kids. Number one is you'll end up with a super self-righteous religious kid. These are the kids who are good at following your rules. They're good at, at going along with, with the, the, the rules that you lay out. And so they become self-righteous. Have they dealt with the sin in their heart? Has their heart turned from pride? Of course not. It's just been fanned into flame by how amazing they are at keeping your rules. The other kid you'll produce is one of utter rebellion. These are the kids that stink at being good. They can't follow a rule to save their life. And pretty soon they figure out, I'm so, I'm so bad at this, I'm just going to be bad all the time. Why even try? And so there's just kind of a a rebellion and a simmering anger that can wash over the kid because it's never good enough. And I can't do the rules anyways. Prioritizing the heart is the way that God parents us. If you prioritize the heart and the internal, you are mimicking our Father who art in heaven. Think about Jesus. He comes on the scene and he's asked about behavior externals. Hey, Jesus, what rules are the most important ones to follow? Remember? What does Jesus answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He cuts right to the heart. He goes to the internal. Think about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then he goes on to lay out 
all the rules that they were getting wrong. He was beginning to take the shell of behavior and shatter it and expose it for the flimsy thing it is to build on. Here's how he said it. He said, you have heard it said, and then he says this authoritatively, but I say, you've heard it said, here's the rule, here's the external, you think you're getting an A+, but I say, and what does he do? He goes right to the heart of the matter. You haven't committed murder? Great. What's going on in your heart? You haven't committed adultery? Not technically, but what's going on in the heart? You haven't stolen? I bet you covet. On and on and on he goes, exposing the external and getting to the heart of it. Is it harder to get to the heart of a matter than to deal with externals? Of course it is. That's why we do the Twinkie. That's why we take the shortcut. It's really hard to get at the heart. Parents and kids alike... I'm going to put some verses up that scream at you this message. Guard your heart. Some of you kids won't believe me now. You'll believe me later on. Guard your heart. Parents, here's a special nod to you. Fight for the heart of your kids. Proverbs uh, 4.23. I've written all these down, by the way, in your notes, so you can uh, just read them and follow along and, and, and look them up more later if you want. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Mark 7 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Those behaviors are fruit, right? This is saying, man, get down in there. Find out what the root is. Conversely, Luke 6 says the good person out of the good treasure of his what? Heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. read a proverb this week that says, even as a young child, you can begin to see what's going on in the heart of a child. Listen to their words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Behind every word, behind every action is a heart. It's true of you. It's true of your children. If your heart changes, your behavior changes. If someone comes walking in this room and their behavior is a giant mess, I don't go after their behavior. I know that if their heart changes for Jesus, God will take care of their behavior. It's always from the inside out. That's the Christian way. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the heart of your child? I don't care how old they are, where they live, what stage of parenting you are. Do you know the heart of your child right now? The heart is the control center of life. What if we focus our attention, our effort, our strategies at correcting attitudes in the heart rather than merely behavior? Does that mean you should never correct behavior? Of course not. That comes also. But focus your energy on the heart. I want you to think of a time right now, whether in parenting or in relationships, where one thing was really about another. Here's an example. An outburst of anger at eating mashed potatoes was really about not making the sports team, right? So, so we're looking at mashed potatoes and dinner time and rules and defiance. It's really not about that at all. It's a giant hurt of rejection that went on earlier in the day. It's being expressed with mashed potatoes. Is this about mashed potatoes? No. Do you care about mashed potatoes? Not particularly, unless it's Thanksgiving, Right? You care about your kid's rejection. Do you care to come alongside and support and point them to truth and love on them? Of course you do. It's the most important thing to you. But we can get duped by mashed potatoes, can't we? 
We can get duped by, by laying down laws and, and sending people to room and all kinds of things that can go on in this situation. How about the example of, of taking a toy? Uh, this is common in our house because we have uh, more than one sibling at work and they're uh, young and so a toy is taken and often the line of defense will immediately go, what? I had it first, right? Now, the most convenient, easy, simple way is to quickly break out my black robe, put on a white wig, slam the gavel and say, and go after justice, which says, who had it first? You had it first. There, take the toy. We're done, right? What have I just done? I've just dealt with justice. That's a good thing. That's in the Bible, right? But what am I training? I'm training quick-handed children, right? They are going to, they're going to be the quickest hands in the West because they're like, man, the one who has things first always gets the judgment in favor of them. If I were to go after the heart in this situation, it might look something different. It might be that they're both displaying this sinful attitude. I want my happiness even at your expense. Isn't that what's really going on? I want my happiness. I don't care how you feel. How about Philippians 2.3 being laid over this? Do nothing, family. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Catch this. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christian, we have the mind of Christ. It's been gifted to us. Christian, you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So certainly he can put to death the selfishness in you. Begin to go after those things. Begin to use these moments. Now, does this take a long time and a lot of energy and a lot of thought and creativity? An immense amount. If you're a parent, probably many of your hobbies that you had when you were young married, you're not good at anymore. You don't devote much time to anymore because you're pouring energy into this kind of thing. How much easier is it just to say, just give it back and we're done with it? Can I just confess? I do that all the time. And then I get convicted and say, that's not what this is really about. Go after the heart. Work back from the behavior to the heart and deal with the heart. Help your child unmask what is going on in her soul. Now, when they're toddlers, they're they're taking toys, and when they're teens, they're taking the car. When someone takes your car and they're a teen and they're in your house, what do you want to do? You just want to go after the behavior, right? The same principle applies. Do you think it gets more complex as they get older or simpler? Infinitely more complex. But the same exact principle goes on here. All right, here's number two. Grow in communication. A father was asked about his communication with his kids. He said, oh, we talk, okay. Just last night, he told me he wanted a bike, and I told him to eat his beans. Uh, Here's what goes on. Parents tell kids what to do. Kids tell parents what they want. Is that real communication? Maybe it's a start. It's not the robust communication that we all long for in our families. Parents, dialogue with your kids. Don't just monologue. 
Okay? Monologue is one-way communication. Dialogue is, is two-way. Be really present and really listening and really listening to understand your child even when they're young. Many parents are too busy to listen to their kids. You know, if you're too busy to listen to your kids, you're too busy, flat out. Does that mean that at every moment, in every situation, you have to drop what you're doing and listen to your kid? No, that's called idol worship. You're idolizing your child. Don't do that. I witnessed something this morning during sound check that looked a lot like a parent not idolizing his kid, but in that moment he couldn't take the time to stop and do what he was doing and listen to his kid, and that was a good thing. Listen to your children. Drawing out the thoughts of another and growing in the fine art of communication. Listen to Proverbs 25. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Jesus was the master at this, wasn't he? The purpose is deep in there in that little kid. I don't know the heart of my kid. I don't know what's causing this psychotic behavior right now. The man of understanding will draw that out. That takes patience. That takes listening. And by the way, listening isn't that little pause between you thinking of what to say next. It's really listening, right? Help your kids articulate their thoughts and their feelings and their experiences. Don't just talk about the details of the day. Go back after dinner and say, you know, you brought something up. How did you feel about that? Learn to ask great questions that kids cannot answer with yes or no. Or when they're teens, uh, like a little grunt, right? Or a nod. Think of great questions that are open-ended that, 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 that uh, generate this. Focus on the understanding, uh, understanding the, the nature of the struggle. There's a great book called Shepherding the Heart of a Child. And in it, he exposes some of these things. Here's some questions he, he points parents to. What specifically is the abundance of the heart in this circumstance? Here's another one. What was the temptation going on? What is the response? We all have things happen to our lives. What shapes us is not just what happens in our lives, but how we respond to what happens in our life. That's what shapes us as people. What is the lie being believed in my child right now? How can I bring the, the, the truth of God's word to it? And what is the idol that needs to be smashed? Your kids are non-stop worshipers. There's no question whether they will worship or not, they will worship. The only question is who or what, right? And we go through different phases. What is the idol that needs to be smashed? What is the false god that needs to be struck down in your child's heart? Some of you go to the gym because you're not in great shape. Some of you go to the gym to stay in great shape. What if there was a gym for communication, right? You're just kind of flabby in your communication. You're not that good at it. You're not predisposed to it. It wasn't modeled for you. Get into the gym. What do you do if you really stink and you don't know what all the machines do or you want a very specific targeted goal? You hire a personal trainer to yell at you, right? Get someone who can communicate and say, I need help. I need a personal trainer. Would you meet with me for the next six weeks? This is so important. I'm going to ditch out on this other thing that I do and I'm going to make time for this. I need to grow in my communication. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That verse ought to undo you. If that verse doesn't lay you naked, then you're not listening or you don't have a sober assessment of your life. No corrupting speech ever 
That would mean a pretty good heart, abundantly flowing out nothing but grace for the moment in all these different situations. You know, the Bible gives such rich variety as to how we're to communicate. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Chances are you lean toward a couple of these and give a hearty amen, and you forget a couple of these and go, Oh, that's in the Bible? Encouragement. Fill your kids with hope. Encourage literally means to pour courage into your kid. Encourage your child. Offer inspiration. Know the promises of God and give those to your kid. Hey, do you know that God promises this in this situation? Bring up the heroes of the faith in scripture and in history. Put those in front of your child. How about correction? A correction remedies something wrong. That means you're to call out that which is wrong in your child. The fact that we're to train them up means that something's wrong. Correction implies that there's a standard that we can know if it's true or not. It's correcting to a standard, to something that is straight and measuring against that. How about rebuke? Rebuke is stern disapproval. Behavior, words, and attitudes Not just a gentle, Johnny, they're there. Let's be nice. Let's use our words. Johnny might need a little bit more than that at times, right? That's what a rebuke is. This can happen without a word. I was in Texas one time. I was, I think, in sixth grade or fifth grade. uh, And I've shared this story, but I had learned a new swear word on the school grounds. I didn't uh, didn't quite know the severity of it. Uh, I didn't think it was that bad of a word, but, but I tried it out on my grandparents in, uh, in San Antonio, good Southern Baptist uh, uh, folk, and, uh, and here we were going to go stay with them for the summer, and um, we're watching the Spurs, they're big Spurs fans, I was a big Spurs fan, and someone stole the ball, and I said, oh, that, and I just let the word fly, and, uh, and there was a stern rebuke that went on, and it went on without a single word. And it landed heavy on my heart, such that I'm talking about it 30 plus years later or 40 years later. So there's a way to, to rebuke and come down and say, that is completely unacceptable ever. And it doesn't even have to be a big giant to do. Instruction. Introduce your kids to wisdom. Introduce your kids to people who are not wise. That's found in the Proverbs. The fool says this. The person of folly does this. The wise person does this. Introduce your kids to these people. How about the sluggard and the mocker? And Proverbs is just the starting point. Finally, warning. Teach them the sowing and and reaping principles. Hey, you're going to plant in one season. You always harvest in a different season. You're doing the hard work right now. That's not going to come to fruition for another season, just like plants in the ground. Hey, you're screwing up right now. You're getting away with stuff right now. You're mouthing off right now in this situation. I'm telling you, that will catch up with you. You're doing things in this life that God lays out very plainly. Judgment is coming for those who walk in this way. Warn your children. Alert them. How terrible would we think of a parent who would let their deaf child go walking out into the street totally unaware of hearing the danger that was all around and they didn't want to confront their kid. They didn't want to cross their kid. They didn't want to frighten their kid to the danger coming. We would think that parent out to lunch.
Lord, help us engage our children, not just reprove our children. All right, let me move on to some specific levers. I've given you five levers that we're going to look at very specifically and very quickly. I said at the beginning that you don't have the ability to impact everything that happens to your child. That's folly. But you do have the capacity to do your part. You have the capacity to apply energy to your side of the lever and to watch that lever work in a way that expands the capacity of your parenting. The power and reach of your parenting expands as you continue to faithfully apply pressure to your side of the lever. Now let me pause for one moment. If you have children but they've not reached the age of 12 yet, could you just raise your hand? If you have children don't have the, haven't reached the age of 12, okay, go ahead and put your hands down. Those of you with children beyond the age of 12, right now I want you to do something. I want you to just give a kind but knowing look to all those who just raised their hand, okay? Um, here's, here's the reality. Middle school begins a process in your child. It begins a process of them pulling away from mom and dad and hear me, this is a good thing. This is by God's design. What did Genesis say about the the man and wife, that they left their parents and they clung to one another. They formed their own household. This is a good and by design effect, and it's painful, parents. You mean I'm no longer the greatest thing since sliced bread? No, and you probably haven't been for months or even a year, and you didn't know it yet. In middle school, around there, it will start to kind of pull away. I got an A in a class at San Jose Christian College called Understanding Parenting. Do you know how much I knew about parenting? This much. Understanding parenting, I was, I was young married, maybe, with no kids. I didn't understand parenting. I didn't know how to do that. Ben's doing something really interesting, and I know because I did the same thing. I taught seminars, and I led parents about how to parent teenagers. Guess what? I didn't have teenagers. It's really hard to do that if you don't partner with someone who's been there, done that. Ben has done what I chose to do, and that is to get some wisdom around you and partner with people who've walked through this, actually. Isn't it easier to parent other people's kids? Totally easier, right? I mean, you're in a restaurant. You're like, oh, man, here's what I would do. It's really easy to parent when you don't have any kids of your own. All right. Uh, Here's here's lever number one. It's going to seem so obvious, but if you miss this one... uh, You miss out on all the rest. It's actually so common to miss this one. God is the first lever to always come back to and continue to apply the uh, pressure on that side. Your priorities are determined by your goals. So again, if your goals are worldly, if your goals are other, other of these levers will actually take precedence to God. But if your goal is to have the, the chief end of your child be to worship God and glorify him forever with his or her life, then God's going to be the first lever by far. It's sobering to know that we can't save our kids. We're told to go out and make disciples. How many disciples can we make on our own? Zero. We can't change the human heart. We didn't die for them. We didn't save them. We're still commanded to go and make disciples. What does that mean? It means we do our part. We faithfully bear witness to to the one who can save our child. So do that in your home. In fact, God says that we should cry out to him like a nagging neighbor that needs cooking supplies. Remember that parable? That's how we're to pray. We're to to not give up. God, it's me again. 
I know I just prayed five minutes ago. Save this kid. That ought to be our prayer. You ought to pray for your kids every single day, at least. And you ought to pray first and most fervently for their salvation. And once they're saved, you ought to pray first and most fervently that they would grow in the knowledge and understanding and depth of love of God. Do everything in your power at every stage to exert energy on this lever. Connect your daughter, connect your son to the one who has unlimited capacity to love her or him forever and perfectly. All right, here's number two. Your spouse. As an act of worship, keep working on your marriage. This is parenting work. Next week, we're going to get into the husband-wife relationship in this God-loving family series. So I won't take too much time here. But let me just say this. If you are married, leverage the teamwork that God has provided in mom and dad. Let me level you with a question that's been leveled at me this week. Is Christ and the church modeled in your marriage? As a precursor to next week, go and read Ephesians chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6, and you will see kind of the core text that we opened with a couple of weeks ago. Our marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. That's the example. Husbands are to be like Christ, and wives are to be like the church. And that's how that ought to look. If you're single today, if you're divorced, if you're never married, and God has blessed you with the joy and responsibility of a child, honor him today with where you are at and with what you have. You know why? I know no other way to honor God with what you don't have and where you're not at. You can't honor God that way. You could waste a lot of time pining for things that don't exist, or you can grieve those things and honor God today right now with where you are at with what you've been given. Here's number three. A, fifth, a third lever is your family. Kids need people more than stuff. We know that instinctively, but sometimes stuff and experiences are just easier to kind of to, to feed to our kids. Invest in your family and seek to have them invest in you. This is an excerpt from a book called Messy Church. Great little book I'd recommend to you. The author says this, Our families are God's first classroom in life for learning about selfishness and love, fighting and sharing, disappointment and justice. This is one of the purposes of family, to learn how to fight fair, to share what we have, and to root selfishness out of our lives. Don't you wish there was more pain-free learning going on in this area? There's not. There's not much pain-free learning in life, so just go with that and know that there are no perfect families. Some of you say, well, you don't know my family. They don't share the same values as I do. Here's my encouragement to you. Use wisdom and discernment. There are some boundaries. Sometimes you just cannot allow people into your home, whether they're family or not, because of the chaos that they would bring. But I have brought my, my kids, and I have exposed them to our extended family, many of whom share not only not similar worldview as my, my own and what I would want to instill in my kids, but exactly opposite and at times very antagonistic to Christianity. My wife and I, it's a great occasion to pray fervently as you head to that family party. By the way, go to family parties and get-togethers even when it's not convenient or necessarily fun for you. Again, use discernment. doesn't mean you should go to every one of them. But we have prayed fervently, God, would you allow some things? I tell you, in my own life, I got to see fake Christianity 
in my extended family growing up such that my parents' real Christianity shone like a star. They didn't even know they were preaching that message to me, but it lodged in my heart. My kids have been exposed to other ideas and other worldviews and other questions going on in different families that weren't going on in our family, and so it was stirred up and brought up, and we got to talk about them and bring, bring God's word into it and, and walk with them through different subjects that wouldn't have normally come up in our family. Here's number four, your church family. You know, even more important than your biological family is your church family, and here's a simple reason. Your church family is going to last forever. Some in your biological family are going to be your family forever. The church family will last forever. So they're vitally important to you. In Acts 2, we read about the believers who were together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We look at that and marvel and say, wow, could we, could we be that giving with our possessions? Could we get to a place where no one would have need because we would just gladly share but how about other things besides worldly stuff that's going to burn? How about values and time and emotional energy and special skills? I've told some of you this, but I, I really love and I've given permission. This doesn't mean you get to pastor the parents' kids. That's my job, or parent the pastor's kids. But there's a certain sense that you give permission to those in your faith community to say, you know what, I want you uh, investing in my kid. You, you would know, I would never want that going on. And if you were to see them doing that, man, gently but firmly come along and, and, and be an extension of that. There's a sense of, um, of ownership and shepherding and training and encouraging that goes on. I love the Christian community because of what it gives to my child. It gives unconditional acceptance. It gives them a tribe to hang with, to belong to, to try on different hats as they go through different stages and not be judged. It gives my kids a safe place to bring their doubts and their fears and their dreams and to think them through with other people. It's also a place to provide a sense of self and significance that's part of a bigger story. It's bigger than them. It's bigger than our family. I also love the Christian community because of what it asks from my kids. Here's what... The Christian community requires from your child a yielding of their own preferences as ultimate. There's a certain positive peer pressure that I've seen go on in church, which is a good thing. Requires showing up, just being present and not slipping into a word-only kind of faith. The Christian community requires serving in the community as being more significant than attending worship services. So, for instance, the doing of it and, and the participation of it is what's, what's required. And we see Jesus teaching as he did. And we know that so many powerful things are, are caught by our kids from other people who are walking in the similar paths that we're in. Let me give you one more. One more lever is specialists. Uh, we have a large family. We have seven kids, and so many people assume that we homeschool. Oh, you have seven kids, you must homeschool. Um, here's, here's, here's a good answer for us. When people have asked, do you homeschool? I say, of course we homeschool. Um, we happen to use the public school system to augment their learning. It really is true. I school my kids every single day. I'm deeply concerned about their schooling, but I bring in specialists called the public school system where they go and study and have assignments and do homework. 
Bring in youth pastors and youth leaders. Some of you are not skilled at spiritual disciplines yourself. You don't have the foggiest idea how to teach that to your kids. Your youth leader does. Your youth pastor does. I do. Other people in your life do. Bring them over. Ben is a sucker for free meals, especially on nights where he's stuck on this side of town on Bible study night. Okay, Invite him over. He eats big. So just provide a lot. But he's a joy to have at your dinner table. Um, bring, bring them over. How about missionaries? Get missionaries in front of your kids. Anytime a missionary rolls in town that you support, that you pray for, invite them over for a meal. Go quickly grab some time with them at a park. I want my kids around missionaries. I do this at home. I bring people of the faith that are doing different things than dad and mom are doing uh, in front of my kids to befriend them and see them. Finally, uh, there are people in this room who have vocations, life skills, business savvy, handyman skills, all of which you don't possess. Get people around them. I just this week went to someone who has some skills that my 18-year-old needs to learn, and I've told him, I need to bring my 18-year-old around you. Is that okay? I want him to learn some life skills. I am going to extend my reach by bringing specialists in in things that I'm not that good at, that I'm not that capable of. That requires some intentionality, requires humility to say, my kids need greener pastures that are beyond my front grass lawn. I'm going to go hunt them out and love my kids well enough. I want to close our time this way. We're going to sing two songs in closing this morning. And I want to invite you to come forward this, this morning. And I want you to, to kneel. If you're in wearing something that kneeling is not appropriate or you have a health risk, whatever, then just come sit in the front. But I want you, as a mom, as a dad, as a kid, as a grandparent, as an aunt and uncle, as a soon-to-be-married, wherever you're at in life, I want you to come forward if, if the following conditions exist. If you need to repent of something, repent simply means, you know what, I was trying to handle it this way. I was going this way with this. I need to align myself with God's way of doing family. If you are desperate enough, you will stand up out of your chair and do the very courageous thing I'm asking you to do right now, which is to come forward in front of church community and church family and just say in kind of a general sense, we won't know specifically, I'm in need. It's that picture of the little girl looking up, help me. This is a prayer of help me. And this morning, I would imagine that we would have a wide variety of needs. Some of you need to repent of deep sin that is going on in your life right now that is hampering your children. Some of you, it's, 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 that, you're, it's that you're slipping. It's that you're skewing off of things. It's that you know the right thing, but you haven't been diligent. Some of you are just desperate for wisdom. God doesn't give in chintzy, tiny, measured ways. He gives over and abundantly beyond what we can ask or imagine. We're to come to him without doubt and say, God, give me the wisdom. You're the one who gave me this kid. You know them. You wired them. You made them. Help! So, just now as the band leads us in song, come forward and pray in the front.